There, you know, what's happening on the ground and what will continue to happen on the ground is far outpacing the effort of anti-abortion people and crotchety conservative judges who are trying to control it, right? It is outpacing, but um, they can still do damage. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. This month marks the 51st anniversary of the Supreme Court's decision in Roe v. Wade that established a constitutional right to an abortion. But 18 months ago, the Supreme Court took away that right in its Dobbs decision. In the aftermath of Dobbs, the landscape of reproductive rights around the country has sharply fractured. 14 states have enacted total bans on abortion, and seven more severely restrict access, according to the Guttmacher Institute, which describes the status of abortion rights in many states as dismal. One in five abortion patients now travel out of state for care. However, Vermont is one of seven states that have protected the right to abortion since Dobbs. Felicia Cornblue has chronicled the rise and fall of reproductive rights in essays for the Washington Post, Time, and other publications. Cornblue is professor of history with appointments in gender, sexuality, and women's studies and Jewish studies at the University of Vermont. She's also vice president of the board of the Planned Parenthood of Vermont Action Fund and was a signatory to a friend-of-the-court brief to the Supreme Court in the Dobbs case on behalf of the American Society for Legal History. Her latest book is A Woman's Life is a Human Life, My Mother, Our Neighbor, and the Journey from Reproductive Rights to Reproductive Justice. It was just released in paperback this month. I asked Professor Cornblue to talk about the new landscape of reproductive rights and to begin by explaining what Roe v. Wade did and what Dobbs undid. Yeah, that's a good place to start. So Roe v. Wade um, is often misunderstood as being some kind of um, absolute uh, affirmation of abortion rights um, or of people's um, sexual sexual privacy or sexual liberty. And it really wasn't that. It was, it was incredibly important um, as, um, as a victory for the women's movement and other advocates for legal abortion, for decriminalizing abortion, which used to be criminal um, as a matter of state law in every state in the United States. It used to be a, a criminal act, at least to provide one, if not also to get one. Right. So, so what happened in Roe versus Wade is the Supreme Court said that those state laws that had made it a crime, um, that those were unconstitutional, um, absolutely unconstitutional in the first trimester of a pregnancy. And then in the second trimester of a pregnancy, the second three months of a pregnancy, they said that, that the states would only be allowed um, to regulate or criminalize abortion under very narrow circumstances, which had to do with um, the pregnant person's health and life. Um, and then in the third trimester, the states had fairly wide latitude to, to regulate access to abortion. Um, and so what happened in the years afterward is that people who were against abortion, they either worked on that last trimester where the Supreme Court had basically said, you know, the states have a lot of latitude 
or they worked in the second trimester area where they tried to make you know new and you know increasingly aggressive arguments about how abortion in one way or another was damaging to the pregnant person's health. Um, and they had a lot of success over time, you know, more and more getting the courts to affirm, yeah, it's okay to regulate this way and that way and the other way. So by the time um, by the time Roe was overturned, it was very far from being an absolute right. Um, and there were lots of people who were even at that time not able to get abortions um, because of these kinds of laws or because of the way health insurance works in America, right? So all of that's true. And at the same time, it was an enormous, enormous watershed and kind of a gut punch, I would say, to those of us who care about, um, about women's rights, about the rights of pregnant people, about the principle of equality on the basis of sex and um, gender and sexual orientation. Um, it was all of those things. So yeah, so Roe was still, even as compromised as it was, by 2022, it was still just a, a vital and incredibly important landmark and not having it is still something that, um, you know, that we feel, I think, every day. Um, and in every state, even, even in states like Vermont, where, um, where abortion rights are very well protected. So let me say what I see as I look out over the map of America, and I encourage people to look at the map of reproductive rights protection in the United States. There are many of them. The Guttmacher Institute has one, and the New York Times uh, has them periodically. They're sort of all over. But what I see is a country that is split in half. Much of the center of the country, um, reproductive rights are in severely limited uh, to the point of being unavailable in many places. Uh, or unavailable after six weeks, which is before many pregnant people know that they're pregnant. And then you have on the coasts um, a different color indicating that those are the places you can go uh, to get abortions. Um, it's not quite as simple as that in the middle of the country as Illinois, uh, in the middle of the country, then there's New Mexico. But it's a very dramatic uh, look of the map of the country where uh, you know, basically, if you don't want to carry a pregnancy to term, people are having to go hundreds, if not thousands of miles um, to get reproductive health care. I'm curious, what do you see when you look out across the landscape and knowing what you do about the fallout from the Dobbs decision? Um yeah, I want to say, I guess, three things. Um, first, just something about history. So so I published a book in January, which is now coming out in uh, paperback in a couple of days, called A Woman's Life is a Human Life. And in that book, I talked about sort of the other side of the coin, how, how people went after the decriminalization and others, how they, how they created legal access to abortion at a time when there was no legal access. Right. And in those days, a state by state strategy was the strategy right before the Supreme Court got involved. Right. And people didn't anticipate that the Supreme Court was going to get involved. Right. They didn't they didn't think the Supreme Court was their friend <laughs> um, when they started fighting for this. So in those days, like every victory in a particular state was enormous. And uh, and my mother was a New York a lawyer and advocate. Um, and she was very instrumental in this in the struggle in New York, and 
you know, the, the New York became a leader in the whole country. You know, people um, from Vermont crossed into New York in order to get safe legal abortions before it was legalized here, right? So that so that was an enormous victory. But you know, on our side of the coin um, today, after Dobbs, what we see is kind of the opposite—a cascading where state after state has either unearthed some old like 19th century law that has been you know, a dead letter since Roe versus Wade in 1973, and suddenly that's being treated like it's good law, or, you know, maybe it is good law. Um, and, 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 and literally oh, 19th century, they are, there are states yes. that are reviving laws passed in the 1860s before women could vote. Exactly. Exactly. And the Supreme Court, the majority on the Supreme Court um, at this moment seems to think that's just nifty. <laughs> it's completely, you know, makes a lot of sense. Um, so, and we're, so we're having these fights, you know, state after state after state. And, you know, one state you didn't mention was Ohio, where there was a very restrictive law and it was not what the people of the state wanted. And they had two statewide votes that they won overwhelmingly to ensure reproductive rights, abortion rights in the state constitution, right? So, so it is that kind of map that you were describing. It's about half and half. Sometimes I think of it as like a like a crazy quilt, you know, like with all these uh, with a kind of a patchwork of differential um, differential access to healthcare is really what we're talking about, right? Um, and we could call it different constitutional rights, different different human rights, depending on what state you happen to live in. Um, and there are millions of people who live in states where abortion is either completely inaccessible or close to it. So that's the I think that is an, uh, the right way to characterize it. The one, the third thing I want to say, though, the, the kind of little footnote is that there's something very different today from the way things were in the 70s. And what's different is the technology, is what we call medication abortion. And it is possible for someone, it's not maybe, you know, fun or pleasant, but it is possible for someone to use this two-pill regimen, which is very safe and very reliable, um, to have an abortion, especially an earlier abortion, um, and to not have any uh, official medical personnel be involved at all. There's a one-page fact sheet you can get from the World Health Organization. It's these two pills called mifepristone and misoprostol. Um, and as long as we're still allowed to transmit those things in the mails, um, people can do that and people are doing it. So actually what we've seen since Dobbs versus Jackson in 2022 is that the overall number of abortions in the United States has ticked up a little bit, right? There's hmm. there's actually been an increase. I um, want to- um, That's I part of it. Yeah, so I want to return to the medication abortion question in a moment, but I want to first pick up on um, some of your criticism of the state-by-state -state strategy. You wrote in Time Magazine, that Ohio became the fourth state since 2022 to pass a constitutional measure to safeguard abortion rights and the seventh to use the referendum process to protect those rights. But it's also they've also shown that the state-by-state -state battles are wearying, expensive, and perhaps unsustainable. Why do you write that? I write that because people are spending millions and millions of dollars and I can't even count the number of hours that advocates and activists are spending in order to sustain or restore these rights. What people, what, what an overwhelming majority of Americans understand as a kind of baseline right 
to make one's own choices about one's own healthcare um, and to access what is basically a safe and simple healthcare procedure, right? Um, and I think um, morally or normatively, I think that's crazy. <laughs> and, and politically, thinking politically about political strategy, I, I just, I can't imagine how we can keep, how we can keep going. The, the activist who helped lead the Ohio campaign, I actually communicated with her after this piece ran in time. And she said that I had even underestimated the amount of money they had spent. Um, that they had spent probably twice as much as I thought they had spent I on the campaign. You, yeah, you mentioned I think twenty six million, and yeah. Uh, so she's saying it was over fifty million dollars in it's one over fifty state. million dollars that they spent between they had they had to do these two votes, one in August um, about the threshold, the, the 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 level of majority they would need in order to pass something, and then the other one, which was the actual vote. Um, so it was over fifty million dollars in one state. And there are localities in that state that are refusing to respect it, even though it's a constitutional amendment to the state constitution, right? And I just was wondering, I, I, I also thought about this for Vermont, you know, and I wrote a piece for VT Digger um, where I made a similar argument. And it's wonderful that we were able to uh, establish reproductive liberty as a constitutional thing in the state of Vermont. Um, but I was wondering like what else we could do if we had millions of dollars to spend you know, what other kinds of advocacy campaigns might we pursue? And what other kinds of rights, you know, medical and otherwise, might we be able to establish if we had that money to use for something else? You know, what, how else could we help people in our communities if we had $50 million or, you know, whatever people are spending on the national level, which is in the hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Um, and think about what we're, what we're not able to do. What's the opportunity cost, as economists would say, because we're spending money on this. And um, you also note that a number of states, um, I think seven states, do not have referendum processes where you can, uh, you know, a popular vote can change the state constitution. And those states include places like Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. Um, so they're stuck with the laws that their legislatures pass. So if this is unsustainable, this state-by-state -state approach, although many states seem to be teeing up now to, to pursue these referenda, what's the bigger and better solution? Well, I think we need a national solution. And putting, a, putting aside the fact that I do understand that we have an inhospitable majority on the Supreme Court, a Supreme Court ruling is not a bad thing, you know, would not be a bad way to go if it were possible to do that. Um, and the thing that I think most people don't understand about Roe versus Wade itself is that it actually reflected popular opinion and it reflects what is still popular opinion, overwhelming, overwhelming American popular opinion. Um, a lot of people do have some concerns about those, you know, later uh, abortions, whether that's second trimester or third trimester, not when they hear people's stories and they find out that, you know, the real reason that people are having later abortions is um, because basically all the time they're they're having some serious health complication either for themselves or the fetus. Um, but yeah, people do have some concerns about maybe that third trimester and the Roe versus Wade opinion reflected that. Um, so actually Roe, if we could restore Roe, that would be a good start. Um, barring that, I think we all have to think uh, electorally as we have to think about electorally about a lot of things like democracy 
And we have to understand that it would be possible for Congress to act. There is a piece of legislation called the Women's Health Protection Act that has been going through multiple Congresses for a decade. And um, if we were able to have robust democratic majorities in both the House and the Senate, then we would be able to pass that. And we would be able to protect people's rights on the national level, and we'd be able to do something different with that millions and millions of dollars and those hours and hours of, of people time that have been spent trying to get us back to some kind of humane baseline in terms of abortion rights. But for now, the state-by-state -state strategy is the only or the primary tool for securing rights where they're being stripped away. One of the things that struck me uh, in your writing, Felicia, is you you note that um, since uh, the Dobbs decision, almost every pregnancy-related prosecution since 2020 has been of a woman of color, an immigrant, or a low-income person. How did that come to be? Yeah, we have a, a it's a very bad, um, it's a very bad situation. It's not just the laws. I think we also have to understand how the laws are implemented and that even before Roe was overturned, that there were members of our communities, members of our society who were more vulnerable to prosecution. People, um, people are generally not prosecuted directly for something called the crime of getting an abortion, right? I think um, I think there still is a, I mean, some of the laws don't allow it. Some of the state level laws don't allow it. They talk about the people who provide abortions more than the, the patients. Um, and I think there also is some hesitancy um, about going after the pregnant person who's seeking the abortion in that direct way. But they, they are called something like, you know, mishandling fetal remains or mishandling a corpse. Um, and these are also very old state laws that haven't, you know, been thought about very much by advocates and reformers. And they're being kind of dusted off and being used against people who may or may not have, you know, sought the abortion, they may or may not have used uh, medication in order to uh, spur or bring on a miscarriage. Um, but we know these are people generally who generally um, have had, you know, something, a miscarriage that may or may or may not have been induced by, by these abortion pills um, in, later in a pregnancy. And because there are people who maybe are uh, somewhat isolated, um, people who may not be able to hire a lawyer to help defend them, you know, people who are, who are easily targeted, um, Black, immigrant, Latina, Latinx, um, you know, there, there are, there are stories all over the country of people who have been targeted in this way. And right now, of course, there's a woman in Ohio, a black woman in Ohio, who's being charged in this way. And this is uh, Brittany Watts. I explain what is happening to Brittany Watts. So this is someone, I mean, we, this, this is, this is how it really happens, right? So this is someone who had a, a distressed pregnancy, um, a non-viable pregnancy and sought abortion care and was refused um, and was told to go home. <laughs> and um, the medical personnel, you know, who were worried, I guess, themselves about being prosecuted for aiding and abetting an abortion, um, they sent her away. She came back to the hospital a second time um, and then she miscarried. 
And I don't know, you know, I don't know if she used pills or not. I, you know, personally, I, I don't really care. <laughs> the fact is that she miscarried and, uh, and she was uh, quite far along in the pregnancy. And, um, and so the, the, the matter that she, that she miscarried was not just a couple of cells, you know, it looked like a little fetus and she didn't know what to do with that thing. And she went to the hospital again to be, you know, to have her health taken care of. And she didn't bring the fetal remains with her. And then um, a nurse at the hospital basically turned her into the police and sent some police to her house to look around and see, you know, whether she might've quote, mishandled the remains. And that's how this whole thing started. She came under um, under police targeting for this reason. I, I cannot believe that this would have happened to a white woman. I just cannot believe that, that it would happen to a white woman. And if it did happen to a white woman, um, I can't believe that they wouldn't, that the police wouldn't have backed off. Um, so basically quickly. any miscarriage becomes a crime scene. In this yes, scenario. exactly. 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 Um, and, and yes, all the prosecutions that we've seen, according to um, if, when, how, which is the legal defense organization for uh, pregnant people, um, all the prosecutions we've seen so far are to quite vulnerable people. But there's no reason to believe that someday, you know, if um, if the public doesn't really push back and we don't, you know, we, we don't vote in different people and we don't really raise a cry about this, that it might not um, affect absolutely everybody, you know, um, Talk you know, about uh, the case of Kate Cox in Texas mm -hmm. and what this exposed, you know, Kate Cox was using the laws as they exist in Texas. And, and you can explain the details of her case, but, you know, all along as these restrictions are being passed, uh, people are, are, you know, people who are objecting are being told, no, no, we have laws. We, we protect the, you know, the health and life of the mother. We'll do all these things. But the story of Kate Cox in Texas um, sort of casts that in a different light. So explain what you see going on there. Yeah, well, so this is someone who who learned fairly late on in her pregnancy that the pregnancy was absolutely not viable, right? Um, somebody who, you know, wanted to be pregnant, wanted to have this child. Um, and she did exactly what the law would have told her to do, right? She went to her health care provider who said, yep, um, the appropriate thing for, for your health um, is to have an abortion. And um, there's, you know, there's no way that this is a viable pregnancy. And, um, and her health care provider, her doctor was not able to do the thing that her doctor thought was, was medically appropriate, right? That the hospital decided that that was um, not something that they could accommodate. Um, and so they went to court and they got a ruling. She got a ruling from the, uh, the highest court in the state. And uh, actually, no, from an appellate court. And, uh, and they said, yes, you should be able to do this under our law. Um, and then uh, the attorney general of the state said, I will prosecute any medical professional who provides an abortion in this case, in such a case. Right. He sent um, letters to the hospitals where she, yeah. in the area where she lived, the three hospitals, threatening them that regardless of what the laws told her, he would prosecute the hospitals and the physicians involved in her care. Yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. So ultimately, she had to leave the state in which she lives in order to get something like appropriate health care in the middle of her own health crisis and and probably grieving, terribly grieving because she, you know, she wasn't going to be able to have this kid. Um, and I mean, in some ways, what I see there is is even worse than what was happening just prior to Roe versus Wade, you know, because at least at that time in the in the late 60s and early 70s, um, there, there were these laws that said that abortion was a crime, but there were also medical exceptions. And at least at that time, those medical exceptions were largely being enforced, right? And doctors, you know, the opinion of a doctor who said, yeah, this is really essential. Um, that that word would, in, in at least in many parts of the country, the doctor's word would be respected. We're not in that that universe anymore. Right. Um, her, doctors, the doctor's uh, her doctor said that her health and her life were in danger and that didn't matter in this case um and didn't there seems to be ways that that doesn't matter in a lot of cases now all of a sudden felicia you have a new book well a new paperback edition of your book uh, has just come out a woman's life is a human life my mother our neighbor and the journey from reproductive rights to reproductive justice tell us about your mother my mother was a labor lawyer and uh, an advocate and a feminist. She started out as, I think she would have called herself a liberal, a real liberal, um, who wanted to make sure that the Democratic Party was good to its values, that it was pro-civil rights and anti-war. Um, and in the mid 60s, she became a charter member of the New York City branch of the National Organization for Women, which was then a new civil rights organization that had a new idea, which was civil rights for women. Um, and as a member of now that organization, she drafted the first ever bill that was introduced into any legislature in the history of the United States that would have completely removed all barriers to accessing abortion. It would have, it would have simply taken abortion out of the legal code. And at the time, nobody had ever done anything like that. And um, so not only did it inspire a movement in New York, but it inspired a national movement, like the, the group that used to be known as NARAL, which is now called Reproductive Freedom for All. NARAL was formed around that bill that my mother introduced in New York, um, which was sort of their test case of full repeal uh, of abortion. Now, now you're, you're referring to your mother as a liberal. I think of liberals mm -hmm. as people who work within the system for incremental change. What she was proposing was radical for that time. It was overturning the existing president precedent and reaching far beyond what many people thought was possible. So um, did you think of her as you looked back into this as more radical than you perhaps once did? Well, I guess I think of liberalism as sometimes being kind of radical. I think liberalism can be radical. Like she was a liberal in that she was really interested in equality. You know, she thought that that everyone should be treated equally by the government. And that meant having um, equal access to education, including higher education and professional education, and having an equal shot at every job that they were qualified for, um, and for training and for being in a good union and all of those things. And none of that was you know, taken for granted, we can't take it for granted today, right? That somebody who's low income, somebody who's not white, somebody who's female um, or gay or trans, right? That they will have all those basic 
civil rights. So um, her belief in basic civil rights drew her into this campaign for, um, for an abortion law that was way beyond anything that, that anybody thought was realistic to pass at that time. Um, and there were other feminists who, you know, were more radical in terms of their tactics and their attire <laughs> and a lot of things than my mother was. And they also wanted that. They wanted the same thing, right? There was this moment where all the branches of feminism, which, you know, were debating with each other, just like we debate today, um, they all came together on this one demand. You describe kind of a basic paradox within um the early abortion rights movement, and perhaps still a tension within the current movement, where there are two ideas in tension with one another. One is government stay out, and the other is government do what must be done to ensure I'm not a second-class citizen. So how did your mother resolve that tension? I think that my mother was, was really on the government do what must be done side of things. I, I think of that as the equality side of things, right? That that if we're really going to be treated equally by our governments, local, state, federal, that that it actually requires that something be done to, you know, to fight against all the inequality that's present in our society. And I think that's where she was coming from. You know, she was someone who she was raised in a working class family by um, a mother who had divorced her father, which was very, you know, um, radical at the time. Um, her mother did not have the advanced education, worked in factories, had a small business at one time. Um, you know, my mother struggled her way. She went to law school without even graduating from college. She had like two years of college and was able to kind of fight her way into <laughs> law school, um, not a fancy law school. And, um, I think she really, she really wanted to live in the kind of society and with the kind of government that would have smoothed the way for her and to everybody, you know, who faced barriers like the ones that she faced, you know, as a woman, as a the child of an immigrant, as a as a Jewish person, you know, all of those things made it hard for her to for her to advance in the way that she knew that she was qualified enough to advance, right? And I think she wanted that for everyone, and so. I'm sure that she also, you know, was moved by arguments about how the government shouldn't be in your business and it shouldn't be in your bedroom, you know, like that, I think that that also would have appealed to her and it appeals to me also, but primarily she was motivated by this idea of equality and the idea that, you know, we don't all get the same kind of start in life. And the reason that we have government is so that it can ameliorate, you know, it can undo some of the inequality that we start out with. One of the stories at the heart of your book is the story of your mother and your neighbor. Talk about who your neighbor was and the influence that it had on your mother and on you. Our next door neighbor for about a decade was this very remarkable woman who, um, who's usually not remembered in women's history or the history of healthcare, but she should be. She's a, a Puerto Rican woman named Helen Rodriguez Trias. And Rodriguez Trias was a, a pro-abortion or pro-choice activist um, about the same time as my mom. But then after Roe versus Wade in 1973, Rodriguez Trias 
continued being a real grassroots activist. And she was one of the founders of a movement that was fighting sterilization abuse all through the 1970s and then into the 80s and 90s. And so that branch of the movement, which we could you know, still think of as a reproductive rights movement, it's very important to have the reproductive right um, to have a kid and to not have a, to not be sterilized if that's not really the choice that you wanna make. Um, that part of the movement often drops out, right? When we talk about the reproductive rights movement. And it's so it's important to remember Helen's efforts and also to remember that movement that she was a part of. And, you know, postscript to today, it's not really in the way, way back, um, that whole issue of sterilization. We saw in the California prison system, quite recently, there were women who were being sterilized um, against their will. And there's now a reparations um, a process in California where people are getting some compensation. Um, we saw it in at least one uh, ICE detention facility for immigrant uh, people under President Trump. So this is something that is quite worrisome. And I think it's, it's part of what we have to um, keep on our radar that of course abortion rights are urgently important uh, when we think about reproductive rights, but there, there are other issues in there as well. Um, I want to return to the current landscape, and um, you had raised earlier the issue of medication abortion. Talk about how that has changed the game, uh, the political game, and the current threat to access to medication abortion pills. Yeah, so so what we call medication abortion, right, is this two-pill regimen and it's used all over the world. It's used by millions and millions of people. We don't know how many because a lot of them are operating in, in countries or in localities where it's not legal. It's kind of in a, in a gray zone or even illegal. Um, then the two drugs are go by the names, one mifepristone and the other one is misoprostol. And uh, there are two big threats in the United States. One is the United States Supreme Court is uh, hearing a case this term, and they will decide by the end of their term in June or July, about access to mifepristone, the first of these two drugs. And the way that they're going to examine it is um, they're, they're taking on the question of whether the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration at the national level, um, is regulating this drug appropriately. So the, the anti-abortion people are saying that the FDA is too loose and they're making too, they're making it too available. Um, and they've asked the Supreme Court to rule on this. Um, uh, luckily, the Supreme Court has refused to take on the question of whether the drug should be legal at all, right? So that will not happen. They will not simply say, you have to pull this thing off the market. That's, at least right now, the Supreme Court has refused to take that one on. However, the Supreme Court agreed to take on um, what may seem to them like a more modest question, but still a very, very serious question, which is whether the FDA is being too loose with the way it regulates this. So they may pull back on people's legal access to the first of these two um, abortion drugs. Now, the thing is that you don't need both drugs in order to have an abortion. Actually, misoprostol alone, the second drug, um, which the Supreme Court has nothing to say about, um, that drug will um, effectively create an abortion, but it's just, it's safer. It's actually safer to use both. So these guys who say, these you know Supreme Court justices who say they care about people's health, like uh, um, uh, if they decide to withdraw the 
the access or or pull back part of the access to mifepristone that would not be equivalent to respecting people's health, right? It's 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 safer and healthier if you use both drugs. So that's the first big thing. That's the first big challenge. The other thing is there's a 19th century law that seems to be rearing its ugly head that's called the Comstock Act. And the Comstock Act is the law that was used to prosecute Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, who was thrown in jail and her sister was thrown in jail in the early part of the 20th century for providing information about birth control. So that law, believe it or not, has come back to the fore and there are conservative anti-abortion legal thinkers who are trying to get um, courts to say that you can't send uh, medication abortion, abortion pills, um, either of the, the pills through the mails. So they're gonna go after medication abortion through the, the federal Comstock Act, which is a really old congressional law that just was never repealed. So I'm wondering to, you know, we know that a number of states, including Vermont and Massachusetts, and uh, probably some others have stockpiled the medication abortion pills. How does this end? We have um, international groups, groups based outside the country that are committed to providing abortion pills to American uh, people who want it. So is there the possibility that regardless of the law, there is a grassroots, grassroots movement um, that will operate as it does in uh, countries where abortion is illegal and simply flood the <laughs> flood the zone with the pills and this will just become moot. I mean, what I guess you're also somebody who who talks about social movements and grassroots power. I'm I'm wondering if we're kind of entering a new realm where the Supreme Court becomes kind of a bystander and what it says actually doesn't matter. Um, I, I, uh, I'm going to answer in a, in a somewhat circuitous way, but hang on. Um, uh, I got to sit, um, in on the, the oral argument before the Supreme Court of the last big abortion case, the one before Dobbs, um, which was called June Medical Services versus Russo. So this is March, 2020, right before everything shut down. And there was a moment in the oral argument in that case where Justice Ginsburg, who was still alive, raised kind of raised her hand asked a question and said um so we're talking about abortion all these you know surgical or procedural abortions that are happening in clinics and hospitals like isn't it true that the the vast majority of of abortions today happen through medication and everybody in the room the like the the very senior old justices on the supreme court and some of the lawyers kind of looked quizzical like even then even in 2020 um there was, it's, it seemed um, from that moment that there was a big gap between the way the Supreme Court understood what was going on here and what's actually happening on the ground. Um, and I think that's just become more and more true in the years since 2020 and since the Dobbs opinion in uh, 2022. Like people are using um, medications, they're getting access to them. There are groups like Aid Access, which is based in Holland, um, that as a platform that's being used. There are feminists in Mexico where the Mexican Supreme Court has legalized and decriminalized abortion and they are deeply committed to helping US-based women um, along the 
along the Texas-Mexico border, for example, but they'll help, they'll help people anywhere in the United States. Um, so yes, I think at some level it's unstoppable. Um, but what I don't wanna see is people be in an environment in which they are constantly looking over their shoulder, in which they're isolated because they feel like they can't tell their friends or their relatives, right, what they're doing because they don't trust them, they don't want somebody to turn them in. Um, you know, pregnancy is hard enough and I think abortion is hard enough without then imposing these additional risks on people. And even if, if one person has to go to jail because their local postal worker opens a package that they're getting because you know their superior says you have to enforce this 19th century law, like that's one person going to jail too many as far as I'm concerned, that's a human rights violation. So I think you're absolutely right there. You know, what's happening on the ground and what will continue to happen on the ground is far outpacing the effort of anti-abortion people and crotchety conservative judges who are trying to control it, right? It is outpacing, but um, they can still do damage. Locate this conversation about reproductive rights in the larger landscape of what is going on with rights for LGBTQ people and women? What is this part of this backlash, this, you know, um, kind of wave that seems to be sweeping over us led by, you know, fundamentalist religious groups, be they uh, of, of every stripe? and that are now kind of taking hold of our politics? I think that it is all related and it's all related to democracy. Um, it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to see how the Republican coalition would hold itself together if it didn't have, a, you know, feminists and people who may seek or may need abortions and gay people and trans people to beat up on. Um, we are kind of the unifying glue. Um, I identify as a lesbian and as a feminist. Um, and um, we're, we're doing a lot of work for them, um, holding together what would otherwise be a kind of rickety coalition. Um, and I think we also, um, I think they use us also as an excuse, you know, and more and more all the time for their anti-democratic politics. Like, you know, why do we need to have dictator Donald Trump? Why do, why do some people think that it's okay to have somebody like Donald Trump who's, who's a declared authoritarian more or less, um, as well as a racist and a sexist um, and probably a felon, although we'll find that out later. Well, the reason is because um, people don't trust the conventional political system or the conventional court system to be uh, draconian enough. You know, every time, every time there's a victory, a democratic victory, or a human rights victory, or a constitutional rights victory for abortion rights, for gay rights, for trans rights, right? That becomes another argument for um, for right wing authoritarians to say, see, you know, you can't trust the democratic system. So instead of people like learning to live with each other, instead of us, you know, learning to live in a complex, you know, multiracial, multigender society and, and living with one another's differences, instead, 
what's happening is that the the hard right, the conservative hard right, is just using every one of these issues to, you know, to hold together a coalition that is threatening to everything we believe in. You know, it's threatening to the most the most fundamental legal and political values that we could possibly have. And another one of the threats that the right identifies is in academia, in your world. And we've seen the remarkable spectacle in the last month of uh, the presidents of the University of Pennsylvania, Liz McGill, the president of Harvard, Claudine Gay, the first uh, black president of Harvard and a black woman president of Harvard, um, all uh, ousted under various pretenses. But um, really, I think, well, rather than me say it, what do you see happening there? Why do you think these university leaders are under attack and losing their jobs? I think that they're under attack and that a lot of the spirit of, of uh, free debate and dissent is under attack in universities. It's because um, I guess it's similar to the gender conversation and that there are issues that, that people have dis genuine disagreements about and that are often incredibly tightly held for people, people feel personally implicated and there's an, an incredibly well-funded and well-organized right-wing attack machine that um, is very effective at finding the hot button. So the hot button button du jour seems to be anti-Semitism. And um, you know, there's just there's an enormous machinery that's operating inside institutions and outside institutions just battering away. And, and and how legitimate do you think the claims of anti-Semitism that are being used here against these uh, college presidents? How real is that? I don't think it's real. Um, I don't. I don't think that. I don't think that um, President Claudine Gay at Harvard, um, and that's the case that I've studied the most. I don't. I don't know everything about all the other schools. I don't think she did a fantastic job of responding to the Hamas attack um, when it initially happened. Um, and I don't think that the University of Vermont uh, leadership did a good job either. I, I think they they did a kind of a poor job. Um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's the starting point for a conversation, right? Let's have some university-based town halls. Let's hear, hear from students. Let's hear from faculty who have expertise in the area. You know, let's let's address that the way that Academic are successful United States um, institutions of higher education address such things. Let's, you know, let's debate, let's do research. Um, let's draw on people who've been doing research in this area for 20, 30 years and, and who are recognized as leaders in their field. Like we have ways of addressing things when we when we disagree and when we're dissatisfied. And I think that's the problem, is that there's a group of people who have stopped believing in, in the basic principles that govern these institutions. And my suspicion is it's because they wanna tear the institutions down. And that's very, very dangerous. Um, we need our universities. We need to have some freedom of research. We certainly need to have freedom of debate. Um, and universities are one of the last havens of that, right? Um, we... how, how concerned are you that this tide will wash over University of Vermont where you work? 
Well, I have to say so far, I think we've done pretty well at the University of Vermont. Um, so I'm not a I'm not a great prognosticator of the future, but I think that you know we've had debates in our classrooms and uh, I know that my students have had a lot of conversations, sometimes very difficult conversations um, with their friends and with, you know, with people that they that they meet through um, some of the political organizations or the newspapers that they're writing for. Um, and I think sometimes it's hard, but so far, I think we're, you know, we're acting like an academic community and um, and doing our best to work through some to work through some hard stuff and some misunderstandings. Well, Felicia Cornblue, I want to thank you for joining us again on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much. Felicia Cornblue is professor of history with appointments in gender, sexuality, and women's studies and Jewish studies at the University of Vermont. 